0: Last week, I know you're all very, very surprised, but I didn't complete what I wanted to get through on the outline sheet, so... I'm shocked. You're shocked. So let's uh, continue in the Olivet Discourse. I was going to give you that introduction to Daniel that sets up the Olivet Discourse, but we'll do that next week. So will turn to Matthew chapter 23. I'm going to give you a little review on that. And then we'll look at the opening verses in chapter 24. And this would be good for Jeff anyway; he missed it. So, real quick, just uh, and I'm going to go through this real quick. Just a reminder: this is our Matthew. This is the place where the Olivet Discourse is located. Well, it's got parallels, but the main passage, the extended passage, and it's very important in the argument of the book. Jesus' ministry, this is all the book of Matthew on one slide. Public ministry increases and increases, kind of underneath, the religious leaders are rejecting Christ. The pivotal point in the book is chapter 12, where they plot, the plot is evident to kill him, and eventually they work it out such they end up accomplishing their goal. Then the rest of the book, we have increasing Jewish opposition, particularly leadership opposition. The the people and the multitudes generally accept Jesus, he's becoming more popular there, but the opposition increases. Comes to a climax in 21 and 22, last time I gave you the key verses in those two chapters, where he's confronted, his authority is questioned, and basically they're trying to trap him in order to bring charges against him in order to kill him. So that increases, and it ultimately ends in the cross. And then we have the sequel, Christ is Raised from the Dead, in chapter 28. So there's your Matthew in one, one slide. But, along with the opposition, we also have more and more of Christ privately preparing the disciples for his death and for their ministry after his death, and also he is answering questions that Jews would have in relationship to what happened to the kingdom, and one of the key passages in terms of what happened to the kingdom is the Olivet Discourse, and that's where we're at today. So we looked at the setting, 21 and 22, rejection by the nation. And then Jesus returns the favor. He has to reject the nation. A holy God must, in fact, deal with sin. And this is a sinful thing, to reject Messiah. So the Messiah must reject the nation. That's chapter 23. I gave you an overview of it last time, and we'll review the last part especially we have inconsistency of leaders, first part. We have hypocrisy of leaders. And this is leading to Jesus giving evidence for why he must condemn them. So we have the condemnation in 33 through 36.
1: And beginning in verse 33, and again, I'm going to do this real quickly.
0: You serpents, in other words, this doesn't come out of just thin air. It's as a result of what he already has established. They have established themselves as evil people, these religious leaders. He characterizes them as serpents. There would be associations with Satan there. But they're poisonous. They're influencing others as well. So he calls them serpents. You brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? And what he's talking about there, they are under condemnation now. And that'll be culminated when they complete their plot. So they will not escape a sentence of hell. And we looked at the word hell there. It's Gehenna. gave you the background on it last time. So how will we escape the sentence of hell? There's hell. Or there's Gehenna, rather. Okay. (laughs) Which was what? Gehenna in the first century.
1: Garbage dump.
0: Well, it was a garbage dump, but what was it... It was a symbol for hell, and it had all this connotation, this background of public dump that was always burning, was putrid, had all of the evil connotations, and that's why the translators translated hell, but in the original language is Gehenna, and there's Gehenna. It's not quite as ugly as it was in the first century, that's what it looks like today. Anyway... Verse 34, therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Who are they? The disciples, probably in a couple of days. Well, after that, after he raised from the dead, then he will come and they will, in fact, begin their ministry. They will be prophets. The church is founded on the... Yeah, but... Really? Prophets, apostles and prophets... these disciples will in fact be prophetic. A prophet is someone that speaks God's word and generally in the Old Testament and New Testament and it's usually new revelation. Others may have the gift of prophecy without the new revelation part, but the disciples, Jesus is saying he's going to send them and they're going to be wives and they will be scribes or teachers of the word. They will be teachers like Paul. Paul would have been like a scribe. Some of them you will kill and crucify. More evidence of their condemnation. And some of them you will scourge. That happened. The book of Acts is a record of this taking place. Some of them were killed. We have examples of martyrdom. We have examples of maybe not crucifixion, but tradition tells us some of them were crucified, some of them were scourged and in your synagogues, and persecute from city to city. That took place in the book of Acts. Jesus is predicting the immediate situation there, from city to city. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. They are guilty. And he reminds them of, they are the descendants of others that have done the same thing throughout Israel's history. So he records from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, and he completes it, identifying Zechariah, the son, the son of Bechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So we looked at all of that last time. They are guilty. They are condemned, and this is going to work itself out in that generation. Now I, I want to make a big point about when he says this generation, in this context. In this context, when he says this generation, he is referring to the first century generation. He's going to use that same little phrase in the next chapter, in chapter 24, and some people confuse the use in that context. When we get there, I'll give you the evidence and the reasoning. Why, when he says this generation in chapter 24... It's not this generation in chapter 23. The generation in chapter 23 is going to experience judgment.
1: What Greek
0: word is used for generation there? The, what is it, genea, I think. I think if I got that one right. So, uh, they're guilty. Truly, I say to you, all these things... Now, he's hinting at things that he's going to talk about. All these things... But it also refers back to that guilt. And God must deal with that guilt. All these things will come upon this generation, first century. It happened in 70 A.D. Well, it kind of climaxed there. It continued after 70 A.D. And there was a wiping out of the land of Israel of all of the Jews. They were scattered. And they were scattered for nearly 2,000 years. It's only been in our, our generation that they reestablished. We talked about that. So I say to you, all these things will come upon this first century generation. Don't mix it up with the next one. The preterists, remember I gave you the different views, the different ways of interpretation. The preterists make a big deal about this generation in chapter 24. If you look at the details and you look at all the evidence, you put it all together. Two different generations.
1: And isn't that a, is that the same word? Same
0: word. Yeah, it's not a different word. But remember, context, context, context. All right. So now, in the last paragraph of 23, we have the destruction of the nation, which must take place. God always. He's just. He has to judge sin. And if the first century generation Jewish people do not accept their Messiah, because God is just, he must deal with them. He must deal with that sin of that generation. Otherwise, he's not a holy God. He must deal with sin. Now, we're not going to go into the book of Acts, but even in the book of Acts, look at a passage very carefully in Acts chapter 3. Towards the end there... Israel still had an opportunity to turn and accept the Messiah. In Acts chapter 3, I'll let you look that one up and read that one later. So even after they crucified their Messiah, in the first century they still had opportunity. They did not, and as a result, a few years later, 70 AD occurred. Temple destroyed, city destroyed, it was so terrible that uh, Josephus says that on some occasions, parents ate their own children to keep from starving. So it was a severe judgment. So we have the destruction of the, the nation, and we have, we have on one hand the judgment of God that must take place, but we also have the heart of God, broken heart. These next verses illustrate the heart of the Lord. He doesn't want this to take place. And he would prefer that they would retreat to him like a mother hen. He pictures himself in femininity here as a mother that has a desire for its children. Jerusalem, and you get that right off the bat, Jerusalem. you hear him crying, you hear him aching, his heart broken, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. He reiterates it making sure that the message is clear. Last time I gave you some evidence that right from the spot where they were at you could see all of these graves and some of them are related to some of the prophets. Haggai and Zechariah near the Russian Orthodox Church. And there's these monuments. You can see these monuments all over Israel. This is in the Kidron Valley. Now Absalom wasn't a a prophet but Kind of representative of these monuments and some of them, in some cases, to prophets. At least we know some of the places they were, they were killed because we have mentioned. Remember it says Zechariah was killed where? Between the temple and the altar. Hedron Valley, Mount of Olives in the background there. So, how often I want, here's the heart. How often I wanted to gather you like a mother hen and bring you close to my breasts and show you affection. I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers chicks under her wings. Unfortunately, you were unwilling. You were unwilling. And that's that evil will was persistent, killed him in two days, and continued to reject him, and the only alternative is judgment. The only alternative. So that's 37. 38. Here's the pronouncement of destruction. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And probably a reference to the temple, if not all of Jerusalem, but at least the temple, their house, is going to be left empty, is really the word, the meaning of the word there. Empty. Why? God leaves it. Messiah leaves. Messiah is going to leave. And he's hinted at his departure already. In fact, we looked at some passages where it's pretty clear that he must go. He must leave. He doesn't talk about the cross, but he's already talked about the cross of the disciples. Your house is being left to you desolate. And then 39, for I say to you, from now on, you will not see me. There's the explicit statement. From now on, you will not see me. And then we have a very important word, a turning point, until, and this is what the Olivet Discourse is all about, that until, one little tiny word, until, you might think it's unimportant, insignificant, this, very important, turns everything. It gives hope. Israel's going to face immediate judgment, but it tells you Israel is not going to be annihilated. Israel is not going to be totally destroyed. There's going to come a time, and the until anticipates that, and that's what the Olivet Discourse is telling us, all of the events related to the until. okay? Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Israel will, in fact, say that. It's not quoted in the Olivet Discourse, but the Olivet Discourse gives you information that ties to Israel's regeneration, and in fact, they're, I keep wanting to say regathering, but they are already in the land, but they will be there in belief. Right now they're in the land, but they're in the land in unbelief. Remember the Ezekiel passage we looked at? Hey Rick,
1: can you go back one second? Yep. I, I do want to make a point on the word. Uh, where is it says willing? Keep going back to the next verse. Oh. Um Right here, I, I think this last sentence makes a good point about our relationship with God, and that this is what He wanted, but He's given us the choice. So, it, you know, the, that we were unwilling, or that, or that the Jewish people here were unwilling. Yeah. And, and it tells a lot about not forcing them. Absolutely. And so, I think that's a neat point, you know, unwilling.
0: Right, and like you say, this is our tendency. There's lots of applications we can draw here. Yeah, he always desires that we be willing, and oftentimes we're not. Yeah. Well, word of moment generation
1: refers to the after right. The Luke 21 passage, Jesus for redemption. Re- that's yeah,
0: redemption. Israel's redemption. Good. Very good. Very good. Your
1: redemption. Your redemption draw not. Absolutely. But that's but that's actually a Luke passage,
0: I'm not in the right. But the Matthew passage does link, and in fact, next week we'll link it to to not only Daniel, but other passages that give us a lot of detail concerning what's going to take place in the future. Okay, so they will say these words, because Jesus is anticipating that they, in fact, will. This is somewhat prophetic here. So that's the setting of the Olivet Discourse. Let me give you, in the time that we have remaining, an introduction to the Olivet Discourse and we'll look at 24. So, the setting, uh, the Alphabet Discourse, after the nation rejected their Messiah, also after Christ, or the Messiah, Christas rejects the nation. That's the chapter 23 there. The other one, you can, if you want to put 21 and 22, after the nation rejects Messiah, 23, after... Christ or Messiah rejects the nation, and two days later, yeah, two days before the crucifixion is the setting of the Olivet Discourse. So two days later, he will die on the cross, and the main issue that the book is going to deal with: if Jesus is the Messiah, and now Jesus is going to be killed, what happened to the kingdom? What happened to the kingdom? Olivet discourse is very, very important. Unfortunately, the church overall does not understand the Olivet discourse because the church has said, well, the kingdom must come. Messiah was here. Maybe we misunderstood the Bible. Maybe we need to take another look and another look, unfortunately in that case, said, well, maybe the kingdom is here. That's on millennialism. Maybe the church is, in fact, the kingdom. That's all millennialism. Majority of the broader church, even some, a lot of evangelical church, believes in all millennialism, that in fact, the kingdom has already come. It's all millennial, in other words, no millennium, no earthly, visible, literal kingdom. That's why it's called Millennialism. So the church is the kingdom. That's that viewpoint. I think the Olivet Discourse says no, 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 no. No. The kingdom has been what? Postponed. Very good. That's the whole point of it. So if Jesus is the Messiah, what happened to the kingdom? The kingdom, Olivet Discourse, is postponed. All right. So, if Jesus is Messiah. What happened to the kingdom? The kingdom is postponed. That's why we have all this detail, because the kingdom is not going to take place in the first century. It did not happen during church age. Verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple. So, all of chapter 23, in fact, I think partly, I think even 21 and 22, I'll have to backtrack there. All of that took place in the temple, not in the building, in the temple area. Now, let me show you what we mean by that. This is the model that I've been showing you on other occasions and several times. There are two words in the Greek. I mentioned this last time. I didn't give you the words, but there's naas. It occurs in 23. In fact, somebody read 16 and 17 real quick. Who's got it? Okay, go ahead.
1: Woe unto you, blind guys, say, Whosoever shall so swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall so swear by the gold of the temple. And here some of the gold of the temple. See it? Fools and blind, whether is greater, the gold for the temple that
0: Okay, and if you want to read twenty one and thirty five, similarly it's referring to the actual sanctuary, in fact, that might be a better translation, or in some cases, the holy place, the building itself. And the building itself, how many people went into the building itself? One. Well, you're talking about the Holy of Holies. Only one, and when? Once a year. The other part, there's two compartments in that building, one part... The other part, other Jews, but only select Jews, were able to enter the other part. So if you were there, you couldn't take a seat because there was no chairs in there, no seats in there. So don't mix that up. Sometimes the church mix up temple and they call their church a temple. I think it's mixing things up. Linda. I'm, I'm getting there. Thank you. You guys are always one step ahead of me. So, na'as refers to the actual structure or sanctuary itself with the two parts, the holy place and the holy of holies. And some priests went into the holy place and only once a year on the day of Yom Kippur or day of atonement, only the high priest. And he had to get in there and get out of there lest he make a mistake, lest he have a hiccup. But there's another word. So, Naas is in chapter 23, when they're talking about these oaths and swearing and all that, he's talking about Naas, and that's the word that's used. In 24, particularly verse 1, and elsewhere, it's talking about the whole complex. And remember I said, on any given feast day, uh, Josephus tells us 100,000 people could be gathered there. So how do you say that? Year on. There's a rough breathing, Heheron, Heheron. And there's the temple complex. North and south is about a little over a quarter of a mile long, so it's a quite extensive, quite large platform, if you will. Now, Herod the Great is the one that built this over a period of about 76 years. Actually, the first 10 years, they had the essence of it, and then he just kept adding and basically refining different things in that whole complex. And we have remnants of Herod the Great to this day that you can see if you visit Jerusalem. So there's the temple, and notice the little note here. Uh, Well, I guess it's off the the Mount of Olives. is up in that area there. Everything's going to take place there. We'll look at that in a moment. I'll show you that again. So Jesus came out from the temple, out from the temple, and in the context, you can see that it goes down into the Kidron. It doesn't tell us that specifically, but they end up in this context, in verse 3, on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called what? Mount. Olivet Discourse, in case you were wondering, right? All right. It was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings. Old photograph I just showed you, and then I'll show you some more in a moment. Point out the temple buildings to him. They were impressed. This was an impressive sight. Very, very impressive. The audience, as that verse indicates, going away when it's disciples, this is private. The audience, very important. I'm going to stress this as we go through the details. You have to think Jewish. We had training in becoming Jewish, right? All of you are Jewish. Not just our sister over there. All of you now are Jews. We went through the book of Hebrews, so you have Jewish training, you know what it's like to be a Jew. You you're thinking Jewish. Keep thinking Jewish in the Olivet discourse. That's one of the reasons people misinterpret it. They are looking at it from a Gentile perspective. They didn't take the book of Hebrews. That was their first mistake. Alright. Audience. Jewish disciples, it's private private. There's going to be another discourse that is even more private that Matthew doesn't record, but it's in the Gospel of John. It's the upper room discourse. This is not the last private discourse. This one has a Jewish orientation. The upper room discourse is preparing the disciples for a new era. It's going to be different from the Jewish era. And we have all of the fundamental principles relating to a church age. Promising the Holy Spirit, for example. How they're to deal with one another. They're to love one another. They're to be feet washers. All the principles in there. For them to be able to be the founders, the apostles, and prophets of the church. Okay, so the audience are Jewish disciples. And when he came out, this is probably the gate that he came out. That's the most direct route to the Mount of Olives.
1: Were those disciples the twelve, or was it the larger group of disciples?
0: It's not clear, but I would take at least the twelve, and it could have included others as well. It's not clear in the text. So the golden gate, which is sealed up, and some believe that it will remain sealed up until what chap? What book of the Old Testament describes Oh, um, Revelation kind of hints at it, but Ezekiel. yeah, no, not Ezekiel, Zechariah. Zach- Zechariah specifically tells the spot where Jesus will return, where he sets foot on the mount. Of, yeah, on the Mount of Olives, and he will enter through, through there. That. Yeah, this is later, much later, much later. In fact, see that's part. I think that's part of the Byzantine era. Yeah. Yeah, yeah not as the glory, the of going through the Cuban Valley and into the. Okay. Not, but not as clear and specific as Zechariah 14. Very good. Alright. So we have other passages as well. So he came out when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Uh, we're gonna see what happened. Just another shot, same area. Very spectacular. When the sun would fleck off of that, it would be just startling. Just white, white with the gold gleaming. In fact, it's the center of all Jewish life. And it would be the focus uh, of all of the feasts, obviously. So there's Uh Herod's temple, or at least a reconstruction, a model of it.
1: Uh, The the reference was at Moriah 4th.
0: Specifically, but you can start in verse 1 <clears> because it describes a chain of events. What's the name of
1: it? It's so white. I mean, just, it's bright white. Do yeah. you know, they have to be Yeah. I, I, I mean, it just looks like it's at least Yeah,
0: something. I can't remember.
1: It's limestone, is
0: it? Well, most of it, most is limestone, but I'm not sure. I think this is more marble, but I'm not, I'm not. Which,
1: sure. which is limestone?
0: Oh, is this? Okay. Yeah. Alright.
1: Marble are? is compressed limestone.
0: Alright. okay. So what
1: are those cut stones that are like
0: bricks. These? Like over here?
1: Yeah.
0: That's all limestone. Everything else is limestone.
1: cut. It's small. cut. Yeah, they're cut. I mean, Not like the, the meat rough. Meat it's, Sorry, it's, it's
0: really straightforward to cut
1: limestone.
0: Yeah, limestone's relatively soft. Yep. Relatively soft. So I wouldn't try to chew on it, but... <laughs> this is a model. Give you a perspective. See the stairs in the back. Give you a size. It's a huge model. And when I took these, it was at the Holy Land Hotel, but they've moved it since. So when we take our trip to go, how many of you are? We'll go visit the other location. And this is present day, and most, well I don't know if most, but a lot of archaeologists believe that the temple is located right on the spot where that offensive mosque is located.
1: There's a lot of archaeological evidence
0: for it. I mean, they did right. underneath. Right. Yeah, and they even believe they know where the Ark of the Covenant was set. That's so. right. Well, what's interesting
1: here is the of the is actually the type of Good
0: point. Good point. And I think when Hezbollah sends a rocket intended for outer Jerusalem, they're going to be the ones that destroy their own mosque. Because if Israel did anything, in fact, they had a parade one time, not too long ago, where...
1: Is to be the first
0: well, no. no, It's going to be an accident.
1: Oh,
0: this funny. is my theory.
1: Uh, Mary Lee. Now, I was just going to say that we...
0: Non-inspired.
1: <laughs> we do have to realize that the reason that the mosque is there was that Crusaders had turned the Temple Mount into a garbage heap to show their rejection of the Jews. Yeah. It's there because the Christians did not honor a holy God, they had turned the Temple Mount into a garbage heap, so when the uh, Islam uh, conquered and took Israel, they are. Jerusalem, they believed that this was a holy place, and they cleaned up the the garbage heap that had been dumped on top of it, so we do have to realize that it's not of those bad Jews, because Christians.
0: Okay, alright, good historical note. Just another shot there, of present day temple area, and by the way, that whole platform, that's that quarter mile north-south direction length, whole platform from the Mount of Olives. This is what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. They haven't changed the Mount of Olives. Beautiful sight at night as well. He said to them, Do you not see all these things? They're pointing out these buildings. And he makes a startling statement. Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. They have never found those marble stones or any stones related to the naas or the actual building, the actual temple building. They've never found them. Now, the foundation stones to the broader herion, the broader temple mount, are still there. But in terms of the building itself, Jesus says that not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And we don't even know where they're at. There are some theories, but we don't even know where they're at. Now, one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. So it kind of impresses upon you. Now, 24.1 refers to the broader area. And what Jesus is pointing to is more the structure itself. Verse 3, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Again, disciples, privately. Saying, they ask at least two questions, depending on how you handle the grammar there. But possibly three, and interpreters kind of vary on it. So they come to the Mount of Olives, privately saying, Tell us, question number one, tell us, when will these things happen? Set a date, Jesus. And it's on the Mount of Olives, there's just a shot of what it looks like today, and you can walk that whole area. And off to the right... Mount of Olives, Temple Mount. That's a first century map, by the way. You've seen it over. Another photograph there of Mount of Olives from a different direction, from the south.
1: Where would the temple be as we're looking at it? From the Off
0: the slide to the, to the left.
1: Okay.
0: Off the slide to the left. Okay, so the location. You have the time after the nation rejected Messiah, after Christ rejected the nation, two days before the crucifixion, audience... Jewish disciples, very important, don't miss that. Location, Mount of Olives, thus the Olivet Discourse. First question, when will these things happen? Now Matthew does not address this issue. The disciples apparently are, well, they're thinking of the destruction of the temple. Matthew doesn't address that. Matthew primarily looks way ahead. Luke has a few comments that add to it, and we'll look at those parallels. Luke gives us an answer. He doesn't give a date when the destruction of the temple takes place, but he talks about the destruction in 70 AD. Does that make sense? All right. So the destruction will, in fact, take place in that generation. Now, they ask at least a second question. What will be the sign of your coming? And if it's only two questions, then you add the last part, and of the end of the age. If you view it as three questions, then number two, what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus is going to give many of the signs, plural, as well as a sign that is mentioned in the Olivet Discourse that signals the coming of the Messiah. And that's the heart of the Olivet Discourse leading up to the second coming. And if you have a third question, and of the end of the age, and if you want to phrase it, what will be the sign of the end of the age? And Matthew answers the last two, or if you combine them, the last one of two. The nature of how he answers, it's mainly prophetic. Events associated with the second coming. Also, We have parallels in the other two synoptic Gospels. John doesn't deal with it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke deal with the Olivet Discourse. And if we had had time, I was going to give you an overview. Real quick, let me give you a quick overview. Next time we come back to the Olivet Discourse, I'll expand this. Matthew 24 and 25, don't forget 25. Remember, this is the end of the age, the timeline. There's a period of time. From the signing of the covenant, not necessarily the rapture, signing of the covenant, there's seven years. We're going to look at that seven years. Daniel predicts these seven years. And a lot of the Old Testament prophets predict this time frame. It's broken down. Daniel breaks it down into two parts, three and a half. Verses 4-14, through 14, I interpret, and this is a point of interpretation, uh, there's differences between good scholars like Jeff and I. <laughs> there's differences and they're legitimate. I mean, don't be too hard on Jeff. <laughs> when
1: we're done, we'll
0: talk. Yeah. Jesus seems to summarize them as the beginning of birth pains. We'll talk about that an event that Daniel very clearly specifies takes place in the middle. That's Matthew 24, 15. He refers to Daniel. That's why we're going to go to Daniel next week. The last half he calls the Great Tribulation. That would be verses 15 through 29. But Jesus gives us a total summary here. After, and then he says, after, if you look at verse 30, after the Tribulation, in fact, you can take a quick look at it, 30 and 31, then we have the second coming. We have a very clear description of it. And then, chapter 25 predominantly deals with that thousand-year period, even though Matthew doesn't specify thousand years, but the Revelation does. And it even alludes to the eternal state in verse 46. All right? Closing thought. We need to live a life of urgency in light of... These prophetic events, because we may be on the verge of perhaps seeing things leading up to them. Who wants to close for us?
1: Go ahead. Holy God, we thank you that you have told us as much as we need to know about what is yet to come. You promised the Triple Spirit of Medusa to tell us what is yet to come. We praise you for that. We are grateful that you have not disclosed for you alone. And Father, we, we do ask your Holy Spirit to stir up with us the sense of urgency. We, we have much work to accomplish in this interview. Jesus, you told us that while we are here, while we're doing the, the every day, we are to make disciples. The Holy Spirit, stir us up. to make disciples every day, every we're, we're involved. We pray it. Amen. Thank you.